And while they're doing that, if you have a Bible that you brought with you, if you would open it up to uh, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. It always kind of kills me that like no one wants to sit in this area. I know you're going to get called to Africa if you sit like right here. So uh, if someone just wants to adopt this as your uh, spiritual home within the church, uh, I, I, I exhort you to do that. Um, kind of have a, uh, my own thing today. We're not starting another, uh, we're going to start a book of the Bible here in a couple weeks. And uh, so I just get to kind of share my heart today. And um, which I think is... Uh, <clears throat> it was good. I want to pray, uh, encourage you and exhort you to pray for <clears throat> Shreveport Church. They're meeting, <clears throat> excuse me, they're meeting today and they move week to week the first Sunday of next month. So uh, God's doing a pretty cool work there. And so we want to keep praying for them, pray for Weston and Covenant Shreveport. And uh, Jason is with one of our sister churches in uh, Waxahachie Remedy Church. They had a bit of a crisis this week and asked us if we could send someone to help. Um, cover uh, pulpit for them today, so Jason is doing that. So we're praying that God moves mightily in their services as well. The Bible uses the word easy only once. It came from Jesus. You're familiar with it probably. He said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, or in me you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. Now a yoke was the term that they used to uh, summarize a rabbi's teaching and his way of life. So this invitation of Jesus was to follow him and to take on his way. Basically Jesus was preaching the gospel here so in line with what Jeff said. The gospel, there's nothing you have to do to earn salvation. It's what God has already done. Here, Jesus saying, was doing through me. You can come to me because you don't have to work furiously to be accepted. You don't have to worry on your deathbed if you've done enough. You can place your faith and trust in me, Jesus is saying. My yoke is easy. Easy is a soul word, not a circumstance word. The soul was not made for an easy life. The soul was made for an easy yoke. And yet our souls seem to suffer fatigue. This is what I want to talk about today, this idea of soul fatigue. And look at what are the rhythms of a healthy soul. There's a kind of fatigue that attacks the body. You stay up too late, get up too early. We try to fuel ourselves for the day with coffee and Red Bull Lots of carbs. When we refuse to take time to exercise or eat foods that clog our brains and arteries, our bodies eventually grow weary. Body fatigue. There's a kind of fatigue that attacks the mind. Overwhelmed with all kind of information, all day at work, multiple screens clamoring for our attention. When we carry around mental lists and errands that we need to do and bills that we've got to pay and we hope we can get back to these emails we haven't replied to yet. 
when we try to push strong emotions down as not to let them overflow or erupt at a certain time, it causes uh, fatigue of our will, decision fatigue, just overwhelmed with so many choices. Fatigue of the mind and then fatigue of the will. Again, so many decisions we've got to make. Trying to decide what clothes will create the best possible impression, which foods bring us the most pleasure, with which task at work will bring us the most success, which entertainment option. Have you ever done this? Tried to find something on Netflix and you look for an hour and a half and then you don't have time to watch anything on Netflix anymore, right? It's this fatigue. These categories of fatigue are difficult enough in and of themselves and hopefully I'm not speaking just to my own heart today. This is one of those messages that God has worked me around the woodshed with this week. I'm a fellow traveler with you in learning this. I think this is what Jesus is speaking to in Luke chapter 10. Jesus has begun his ministry. He sent out the 72. The 72 returns. He is uh, a great Samaritan. The good Samaritan is in this passage. And then there's this little thing right after the good Samaritan, just so we don't confuse right, the busyness and faithfulness, he inserts this little picture, the author does, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I want to read it. It says in verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Whose house was it? Whose house was it? Martha's house, yes. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about so many things, but this one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You've heard this passage many, many times and probably heard it preached from many, many different angles. Many commentators have suspected that you have two different personality types being represented here. Martha, the type A personality, task-oriented, getting stuff done, probably a two on the Enneagram. Mary, whatever the other type is. I only know type A because that's what I am. The other type that's people-oriented, distracted by all the beauty in the world, just likes to hang out with people and look at nature. Probably a four on the Enneagram, just loves beautiful things. And that may be true. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to indicate here, that he prefers Meredith's personality type the best. He created both, has purpose for both. He's not saying either that none of us should ever be busy preparing meals I, for one, am glad of the Marthas. Those of you who lead missional communities, you know what it's like. Somebody's got to make the guacamole. Somebody's got to get the house ready, right? Somebody's got to invite the people in. We need Marthas. Jesus is not telling us that we should be like Mary and just sit around, do our quiet times all day, right, singing Kumbaya. That would go against so many other things in Scripture. One of those being spiritual gifts. One of the spiritual gifts that God has given the church, given some of you in this room, is hospitality. Plus, Jesus was a busy person. If you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, he just keeps saying, and immediately this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Jesus was certainly busy. 
Paul, after listing out all the things that he was doing, he said, and on top of that, I have the daily pressures of the church on me. He would later say in that same chapter, I worked harder than anyone that I knew. Paul was not laying around all day eating grapes, listening to worship music, right? Doing his quiet time on the beach, getting up around lunch. That's not the picture here. So why is Jesus picking on Martha? Why not say, okay, Martha, here's your problem. You should take a break and listen to the sermon every now and then. But Mary, you should get off your rear and go do something every once in a while. You should step in and help. That's what I would have said. and That's why I'm not God. Why would Jesus make this point with Martha? Well, you see the world, especially the church, normally values Martha's over Mary's. We need people who can get stuff done. Martha's are considered to be great Christians. Martha's usually value themselves and consider themselves to be great Christians because of all the work that they do. So Jesus chooses to deal with a rather rather dangerous temptation for the competent, responsible, Martha-type people. You see, just like it's harder for a rich person to go into heaven, it's harder for competent people to find the will of God. Because we think we'll just push harder, work harder, do it ourselves. This is not necessarily a sermon on that, just as an aside. And here's a few reasons why it's harder for competent people to really find the will of God. They, they choose strategy, strategy over dependency. This could be the sermon in a sentence. The life of a Christian is one that's yielded to God. Choosing dependency over strategy. Crisis happens. What's the first thing your mind runs to? Strategy or dependency? You wake up in the morning. What's the first thing your mind runs to? Strategy? All the things I got to get done and this here and this here? Or dependency? God, I can't do this without you. The Martha types, they equate busyness with faithfulness. Again, not the same thing. Look at the Pharisees. They tend to choose efficiency over effectiveness. How can I get this done the quickest? Are you one of those people that try to carry every bag of groceries you have in in one trip? My wife's this way. Uh, she, will, she will get in, you know, rip her arm off, but she, she got every bag, right, in one trip. I'm like, babe, the car is like 10 feet that way. Let's just, let's just make a... Choosing efficiency over effectiveness. Listen, that's not how God works. It took Joseph 13 years after being sold into slavery to reach Egypt. Basic, David was anointed king and then hides in a cave for nearly a decade before God opens up his rightful place as king. It was 12 years between Saul, Paul's conversion and his first missionary journey. Then Jesus, of all things, this boggles my mind, Jesus, competent Savior of the world, doesn't start his ministry till he's 30. In our minds, he's just wasting all his time making tables, knowing that he had such a small window. But God does not choose efficiency over effectiveness. He chooses effectiveness. It's good to be efficient, but how are we going to know unless we, unless we choose dependency over strategy? God, what, do you, what would you have me do? God, whom would you have me talk to? God, what burdens are you placing on my heart that I can respond in prayer? God, what, what are you doing? 
Where are you going? I want to go with you. I don't want to just create and manufacture my own momentum and head 100 miles an hour in this direction only to find out that I was heading the, exact, I was heading the wrong way the whole time. Look at the text. I think the key is in verse 40. It said, Martha was distracted with much serving. Again, two very distinct pictures. Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. Learning. It doesn't mean that that's necessarily where she was sitting at his feet. It's, that's the yoke that she had submitted her life under. Paul would later say that he was discipled at the feet of Gamaliel. Not meaning, just meaning that he was choosing to follow him. And same thing here with Jesus and Mary. Mary has said, listen, there's a lot of important things in this life, but nothing is more important than sitting at the feet of Jesus, of hearing his word. So Martha's there learning, but Mary is missing. I mean, uh, Mary's learning. Martha's missing out because she's so distracted. It says here she's distracted with much serving. Now, is serving the king of the universe a good thing? Absolutely. But not to the detriment of hearing his voice. Distracted here, the word means to be driven about mentally, to be distracted, to be overoccupied, too busy. Focused on a thing that you can't let go of. It's a passive verb. It's kind of have this picture like the cartoons used to of the pie that comes through and the cartoon character kind of floats along after. They just can't help themselves. It's really this picture of us spinning all the plates. I got to run over here and get this thing going. I got to run over here and get this thing going. And I got to make sure I get this thing going. It's this my turn to, to serve kids. Uh, you know, that's such a big task. I got to get over here and I got to get this thing going. And, and that becomes our life. Martha, so wrapped up in being hospitable to Jesus that she forgot about Jesus. She forgot about just being with him. And when we get wrapped up in all the distractions for so long, we're headed for burnout. Or maybe a better word that I'd like to talk about today is the idea of soul fatigue. Ultimately, look at Martha busts in the room with Jesus, doesn't even talk to Mary. Talks to Jesus. What does she say? Lord, don't you even care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Can you hear the self-righteousness in her voice, in her tone? Do you not care? Ultimately, she tells Jesus what to do. Tell her to help me. Listen, if the things that we're doing for God aren't being fueled by the time we're spending with God, we will eventually begin to think that we are God. We'll begin to think that we're the king, that everything in life surrounds us, and everyone should do whatever we need them to do so that it pleases us and honors us. But that's not the case, is it? That's not true reality. That's just what Martha seems to be thinking here. And after Martha makes a fool of herself by telling God in the flesh what to do, Jesus, with such a gentle rebuke. We've seen Jesus rebuke Peter, remember that? When Jesus said that he was going to the cross and and Peter came up and said, don't say these things. Jesus used a little different words with Peter. We've said before that men are like thermoses. We can throw, throw, we just kind of throw hard words around, right? But 
Women, scripture tells us, are more like the, the beautiful porcelain vase. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Look what he tells Martha. He still, he still addresses, he still brings rebuke, but in such a gracious way, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. A few months ago, we talked about this when we came to Moses. Now, a lot of people think in a sermon that this is like, you know, a parent using their kids' full names. If I ever heard Luke Powell Allen from my mom or dad, it meant serious business. Like, negotiation is over at this point. I've already, you know, prepared for the consequences. I don't think that's what's happening here. You remember in Moses when, when, when God called out from the burning bush and he said, Moses, Moses, it was this Hebrew term of endearment. Like, I know you. Like, you're grabbing the hand of your little child after they've been hurt and whispering their name. It's this personal connection, what Jesus would say from the cross, my God, my God. That's what's happened. Martha, Martha. This idea like, Martha, I know you. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were some of Jesus' good friends. Several lessons we get come from either his trip to or while in or way back to Jerusalem from Bethany. He's in Martha's house. He looks at Martha knowing she's distracted about so many things and says you are anxious and troubled about many things. Anxious means to be troubled with cares, to care for something inordinately, to look out for a thing. You know what it means to be anxious, don't you? And then troubled, to be disturbed, to be troubled in your mind, to be disquieted, Unable to rest, to be bothered. In our age, it's likely not the dinner party we're distracted by. It's by the device or devices that's in our pockets or in our purses. This has been a a big thing of late that even the secular world is coming out with these leadership books on how to do deep work. How to practice the skill of mindfulness, of a secular Sabbath, so to speak. God knew this a long time ago. That's why he created all this, why he did it. Why I think this very passage is in here for us. See, everything changed in 2007 when the iPhone was invented. Steve Jobs held this thing up in front of everyone and said, this is an iPhone. And for the first time in history, we had infinity in our pockets. Anybody grew up with encyclopedias? Like, yes, yeah, yeah. So I tell my kids about that. And they're like, wait, what? You had to go to books? Oh, yeah, man. We probably spent $3,000 on this set of books. People would go door to door selling these things. And, you know, we would line them up. We'd have to go look under the M's. What's a mongoose? I don't know what that is. What is, what is that? Just looking this thing up in the, in the, in the encyclopedia. That's what we're doing. We, we didn't have Wikipedia. We had encyclopedia. Now our kids, you know, with all the apps and all the things we have, we have, this, uh, we, we have this relentless barrage of any point, at any time, at any day. We've got just all the connection to the world in our pockets. Two hundred, two thousand six hundred and seventeen is the number right now 
of how many times on average, on average, a person touches their phone per day. There's only 1,400 and something minutes in a day. Touching it, make sure it's with us. Make sure it's in our pocket. We've got the, the leg buzzing. We're trying to think what that is. Just to make sure it's close to us. It's on the dinner table right in front of us. We just reach out and touch it. Move it, arrange it. Just make sure it's there. We've got to check it to see if somebody had, you know, tagged us in something. And we got some new news coming our way. It's just this incessant barrage of information. And that's average. Those in the top 10% are touching their phones almost 6,000 times a day, falling asleep with their phones in their hands, waking up, it's the first thing they grab. One study found that the average for people under 40 was 40 hours a week, 40 hours a week they're on their smartphones or they're consuming some sort of technology. 40 hours a week. If we kept up at that rate for the next 50 years, it means that we would spend a total of 12 years on our phones. One other author, I don't remember who I was reading this week, said this. This was, let me say it. This has brought such conviction in my life. Just yesterday, I came in. I was cleaning up outside. <laughs> Ashley's talking to me. I'm on my phone. I don't hear what she's saying. I'm reading whatever's on my phone at the minute. She keeps talking. And at some point, she said, well, okay, good talk. <laughs> kind of shook me. Ever, that ever happened to you? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Babe, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I even have the inside track on the sermon. I've already repented of this. And now I'm repenting again. I'm so sorry. Twelve years. One author said, the moment that we begin consuming someone else's story, Instagram stories, Netflix specials, when we begin consuming someone else's story, what's going on in their life, at that very moment, we quit creating ours. Because we can't consume theirs and create ours at the same time. So what's the deal? Why, why can we not put these things down? There's this incredible science behind our desire to use it more and more. Cal Newport wrote a book called Deep Work. And in it he cites a dozen or more studies that they've done that directly tie the rise in anxiety to the rise of consuming media, specifically news. We don't have time to talk. He, talk, he, he talks about this, uh, this study they did with, uh, with pigeons. That every time they would give this, uh, they had this, uh, these food pellets hooked up to a little lever. And every time the pigeon would peck the lever, a food pellet would come out. And so the pigeons would do this for a little bit and they would eat these pellets. And then they just, you know, it wasn't a thing. When they were hungry, they would go eat it, but they weren't consumed with it. Well, then they tweaked with the system to such an extent that sometimes when they pecked, they got a pellet. But sometimes they got nothing. It drove the pigeons mad. They couldn't leave it. They just peck, peck, peck. Same kind of sociological work that goes behind, uh, what do you call those things? Slot machines. Yes. People ruining their lives day after day in front of those things, right? So these sociologists and psychiatrists and some of the most brilliant people in the world have taken that kind of news about how our brains work and they've arranged social media that sometimes when you get on, you get a few notifications, get a few likes, but they withhold those because sometimes you get nothing, which drives us with this incessant need to get on there and check, man, is somebody checking with me? Is somebody sending me something? I remember this quote 10 years ago or more. John Piper came out saying that 
our phone and social media's account would prove in the last day that prayerlessness was not for lack of time. Cal references one study done by Columbia University, I think, that says if we're doing a task and then we just want to hop over and check social media or check our email or check something like that and then hop back in to the work that we were doing, it takes about 23 minutes before our minds re-engage or fully engage with the work that we were doing. Again, some of the smartest people in the world are designing these apps that continue to pull you back in, hiring brain scientists and studying the dopamine effect that apps can have on your brain and leveraging those for, uh, you know, so that they can make these companies money. And we're paying it off bit by bit with pieces of our soul. Jim Collins says this. This is in a leadership book. He said, we live in a cacophonous age of, full of swarming insects, noise and interruption, buzzing about emails, text messages, cable news, advertisements, cell phones, meetings, wireless web connections, social media posts. He goes on and on. Finishing the thought with, we run the risk of waking up at the end of the year having accomplished little of significance. Each year slipping by in a flurry of activity pointing nowhere. Jesus said that the distracted life leads to anxiety and trouble. That's what he told Martha. You're distracted with your serving. Why are you anxious and troubled? You are anxious and troubled, he said. And this is a term that John Ortberg calls soul fatigue. Have you ever found yourself there, distracted, anxious, and troubled? As Martha was here. So much so that you don't have the spiritual or emotional intelligence to know when you should tell the Son of God what to do or what you're accusing him of. You might ask, what are the symptoms of this? The indicators of soul fatigue are more subtle than the others. Physical fatigue, you know, if you're running a marathon, you've heard of people running it and they hit the wall when your body literally says, I'm not moving another inch. But soul fatigue is much more subtle. It's hard to tell. Just put a list of a few things from John's book. Things begin to bother you more than they should. You find out that you're in a bad mood more than you're in a good mood. Has that ever happened to you? You hear the words coming out of your mouth and you don't even really mean to say them from your heart. It just, it just what happens. You're just in a bad mood. You're just grumpy all the time. It's hard to make your mind up even about simple decisions. Your impulses to eat or drink or spend or crave will be harder to resist than normally they would. You're more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that will leave you with long-term cost. Your judgment begins to suffer, making poor and poor decisions. You have less courage to say the right thing, to do the right thing. You give up too easily on God-given goals and dreams that he has placed within you. You start skimming on your closest relationships. You're easily distracted with mindless entertainment. The truth is, church, I think we're vaguely aware of the price we're paying for living life with this chronic soul fatigue. Am I just talking to myself? You are really quiet. I hope that's conviction. 
at the very least, you find that you're not becoming the kind of person that you long to become. You're not enjoying life and relationships and ministry the way. You're not enjoying your kids. Parents, when's the last time you just sat with your kids and just try to gauge what's going on in their soul? And again, let me confess, I'm a, I'm a fellow traveler with you in this. How many nights do Ashley and I, after we put the kids to bed and do all the things and we're exhausted and we just plop down on the couch and we turn on some kind of noise on the TV and we just kind of wait for 60 minutes until we just start saying, okay, it's time to go to bed without ever really engaging our hearts or our souls or praying for each other, celebrating with each other. When we live in a state of soul fatigue, we struggle to live out the values and beliefs, beliefs that we know are true. It's no longer fun being about what God has called us to be and to do, not because we're out to defy God. That's not our intent. That wasn't Martha's intent here. Her goal wasn't to, de to defy Jesus in the next room, to tell him he doesn't know what he's doing. Lord, do you not care that I'm in here working and Mary? Of course you should care. Tell her to come and help me. It's not that we're out to defy God, but because we just feel so scattered and fatigued to follow him, we don't sound like Martha at all. We're too overwhelmed and underrested to be the kind of parents we want to be, the kind of spouse we want to be, the kind of neighbor we want to be, the kind of friend we want to be. I was reading something, a sermon that uh, D.A. Carson preached on this idea of burnout. He was giving reasons for doubt, and he listed three or four of the basic reasons that you would understand about doubt. His fifth one caught me by surprise. He said one of the major reasons that he's found in his long ministry that people really struggle with doubt is their lack of actual rest. They are just so physically tired, their mind can't engage with the transcendent. So what do we do? I think we need three things. I think these are the boundaries that we have to have. Listen, parents, you're teenagers, and you know this, they need boundaries on their phone. They need, they need software, covenant eyes. They need some kind of software on their phone that's going to protect them from driving off the guardrail. You understand that, right? You ever driven up a tall, steep mountain, ones that didn't have guardrails, and you're just like, man, one turn and my life is over, right? You're thankful for the guardrails. Teenagers need guardrails. One of my mentors told me, to let your child sleep with their phone in their room is like letting them sleep with a snake in their bed. Maybe it'll bite them, maybe it won't, but eventually it will. But it's not just the teenagers. Adults, we need the boundaries. We need to discipline ourselves so that there's not this conic, chronic drip of our soul little by little until we wake up and we've got nothing left. Another thing Jim Collins says, how terrible would it be to get to the end of your life fighting tooth and nail to get there and to advance only to find out and to climb every rung of the ladder, only to find out in the last days that your ladder was leaning against the wrong thing the entire time. Here are the three things I think we need, and I'm going to explain just a little bit of them. First, rhythms in our life that lead to a healthy soul. First, we need perspective. It is so easy to lose perspective, to be driven by the bottom line. 
can't tell you. I mean, it's dozens and dozens of people that I've sat with who because they wanted to reach the next stage in life of success and they wanted to get a nicer house or a nicer car and they picked up multiple jobs. They're going to go do this and that. And I sat down with them and they were trying to seek wisdom. And I would ask them, is it really worth it? To go do all these extra things so you can drive a nicer car, but you're not home to lead your family. You're not home to be there with your wife, to lead your kids. How many of those tragically took, they were headed down. It's easy to lose perspective. Socrates wrote that the unexamined life is not a life worth living. And I believe there's truth to that. We need reflection. Reflection is what gives us perspective. We need to find some silence and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us truth. We need to make a spiritual connection to find out where we are to gauge our own hearts and souls and to see where God is moving. I try to do this every morning. I just try to review yesterday. I just open up with my Bible and I begin to think through, all right, God, where were you at work yesterday? Where did I see you moving? Where did I miss you? Where did I blow it? Where did I fail? And I just repent of that. I, I'm so sorry. This morning I did it about, I didn't even recognize, uh, I didn't even talk to Ashley about that. I didn't even recognize the whole phone thing yesterday until this morning. And God, the Holy Spirit brought that into my heart so quickly and said, that was you. Choosing to focus on something that doesn't really matter and ignoring your wife. We need perspective. We all know how quickly life moves. And when we go week after week without stopping to reflect on our own experiences and circumstances, we drift. We're left without any opportunity to improve the quality of our experiences and relationships, to see what God is really teaching us and showing us. 2 Timothy 2.7, you ought to write that down. We have time to look at it. Paul encourages Timothy, reflect or get perspective on what I'm saying and the Lord will give you insight into all this. Through reflection is where we gain perspective. It's backing off a little bit and seeing what's really going on in your life. You'll be able to spot soul fatigue before you get there. I think reflection, getting, gaining perspective really helps me in three areas. It helps me deal with whatever self-pity might be building up in my own life. You know self-pity. Like, what's wrong with me? Am I the right guy for this? Can I do this? I'm just a terrible husband, a terrible father, whatever self-pity just kind of builds up. God, why are you blessing all those other people and not blessing me? I'm often able to see how my family is being affected by spiritual warfare. If you don't have time for reflection, you'll just think that everybody's just having the worst week. It's just all just a bad week that becomes two and three. Just, just a couple weeks ago, every one of my kids had some crisis going on. Me and Ashley kind of stepped back for a second. We looked at each other, and we just knew it was spiritual warfare. Can I promise you spiritual warfare is real? And the demonic is after your relationships with your kids, your kids' hearts, your marriage. No reason to be fearful because God has equipped us with the Holy Spirit. But we do need to, be, uh, we do need to observe what's going on, being able to connect the dots, the third thing through reflection I often game, I'm able to come back from whatever discouragement I may be experiencing. And why is life so hard? Why are people so mean? What's wrong with my kids? You expose the lie and you insert the truth. And you do that over and over and over and over. 
We don't just need perspective, and we could do a whole sermon on that, but we need people in our life. That's why Ecclesiastes said, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Why Proverbs says that there's wisdom in the abundance of counselors. Have you invited, when's the last time someone spoke a loving rebuke to you? And if it's been a long time, it's not because you didn't need it. It's because you haven't allowed it. You have to invite this kind of word into your own life. Does that make sense? I was talking to somebody about this just the other day. They're like, well, I just can't find, I can't find a person I respect. You know, we say, oh, yeah, we want community, but we don't want to receive a rebuke from anyone that doesn't have a life just like Jesus. And that's just probably not going to happen. It doesn't go a couple of weeks where someone doesn't come up to me and say, hey, are you okay? You don't seem yourself today. And I got to go through my whole reflection perspective bit again. I was with a group of pastors this week. One of the pastors, church planting pastor, was just, his words were just really harsh one of the other pastors, and we've all invited each other to speak this way, just confronted him on it. He said, man, you just really have a biting tongue, which led through this whole journey. He texted us later that day, the group that was in us, and just repented in front of us that God had showed him that he had let someone offend him earlier that month, and it had just grown and festered, and they hadn't done anything with it, and it just came out on everybody. They were just injuring everyone. I said this last week, I want to say it again. You want to find wise people, not smart people. Smart people tell you what to do, but wise people point you back to God. We see here in our text, Jesus did this for Martha. Look at what he said again. Martha, Martha, you are anxious about and troubled about so many things. He didn't just bring the rebuke, but he pointed right? With grace to the next thing, but one thing is necessary. Jesus did this with a lot, remember? Remember he did it with Thomas? Doubting Thomas at the end, he didn't just charge in there. Thomas, how dare you live in disbelief? What did he do? He offered a rebuke with grace, just held out his hands. Thomas, here are the scars. You want to touch them? Now would you believe? Now listen, church, don't be swinging a truth club around hitting people over the head. That is not the point of this. If you're going to bring rebuke into someone's life, I feel you should be invited to do it. This should be the nature of our missional communities. Ephesians 4 talks about when real community is happening that we should speak truth to one another. You've got to do it with, with, gently, and you've got to deal with the own sin, and you've got to deal with the sin in your own life. Don't go charge it in there, as Jesus said, with a log in your eye that prevents you from seeing exactly what's happening in someone else's. Who have you invited into your life to speak on this level? You need perspective, you need people, and then you need prayer. Notice this is Martha's issue. She never asked Jesus what he wanted, did she? Now what did she do? She told him what to do. How often, church, is our prayer life just telling God to bless our plans and our ideas? Well, God, this is what I want to do, and I just want you to bless it. I'm just going to claim your promises on this. God hadn't promised nothing about that. 
You did that on your own, and now you're asking God to bless something that you wanted to do that you did not follow his leading, and that's not the way it works. Martha busts in telling Jesus what to do, not asking him what should be done. How much of our prayer life is us submitting to him, us yielding our lives to him over and over again, listening for his still, small voice? We have so many great biblical examples of how to do this throughout our life. David is one of them, many other biblical examples, great models to follow. You know, we would encourage you that you would start with a quiet time. This was, you know, some people call it quiet time. I've heard one pastor call it chair time. One guy this week, one of the, one of the pastors I was talking to, he called it his pregame. This is the pregame. Your, your real game is when you leave. Coach, you'd like that, right? This is your pregame where you're just kind of, you get in the word, you're getting yourself ready for the day. But if you're like me, man, that only lasts a couple hours into the world. And then we need another heart realignment. We need a heart check of where we're at. That's why David had the, had the practice of praying and encountering God morning, noon, and night. Look at what he says in Psalms 55. He says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan. And he hears my voice. A couple of verses later, verse 22, he says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And you might say, well, you know, I'm a teacher and I don't have time. This doesn't have to be, this isn't a 30-minute thing. This literally can be stepping out your classroom for five seconds and saying, God, I need extra help today. Maybe you do have time to go on a little walk. It helps me to walk a little bit, to get my legs moving and hear hear from God and have him speak. Just this week, one of my kids was struggling with something. I felt, I felt so ill-prepared to handle it. I just bowed my head and heart right there. I was at a red light in the car. And I just felt, you felt this, the grace of God just flooded my car. I heard God whisper, Luke, I love her more than you do. I'm going to handle this. It's going to be okay. That's all I needed. Sometimes when I'm fearful, I hear him just whisper, Luke, I'm with you. That's what we need, is it not? For our hearts to be reconnected. God has asked us to do some really hard work to extend the kingdom of God, right? Push back the darkness. There's really hard things. And as we move into a more post-Christian society than we've ever experienced, we're going to need his abiding presence more than ever. The truth is he doesn't leave. We're the ones that get distracted. We're the ones that our soul gets shaky. David talks about this in Psalms 131, how he has stilled his soul. I've shared this with you before, but this is just a, this is, someone taught this to me, probably my dad, when I was just, uh, just you know, a little one, to pray using the axe acrostic. You've heard it, right? Adoration. What I try to do here is I just list a few things about character that I adore. Adoration. I normally walk through the alphabet. God, you are awesome, beautiful. You're the center of everything. You're my deliverer. You're the everlasting. You're a father. You're God. Your Lord, I just go on King of Kings. That's what I do. That's just kind of my thing. Every day, even when I got a still minute, that, that takes seconds to do, just to try to put myself in the right position and put him in the right position. God, you, 
You opened your mouth and you spoke everything into existence. Colossians says right now that you're holding everything together by the word of your power. Now, do I think that you can't handle this little situation that I'm about to have? Of course you can. I start with adoration. Psalms would do the same thing. David would say, consider the works of God. Then confession, just places where I fall short or fell short that week, failed big time. Sins of commission, things I did wrong, or sins of omission, things that I know I should have done, but I didn't do. Just confession. Scripture says if we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just, right, to forgive us our sins. 1 John 1. And then thanksgiving. Here's something I started just a, a short while ago, and it has really helped me. Every morning when I do this part of my prayer, I just jot down 10 things that I'm thankful for. Just 10 quick things. What does Psalm say? That we enter his courts with thanksgiving. Just, it's amazing how that just changes your heart from being, you know, wallowing in self-pity and confusion to being thankful for what God's doing. And then finally, supplication. We let our requests be made known unto God. What are you asking for? What are you praying for? Again, I challenge you not to just pray selfish things about you. Who are you interceding for? Who in your network or neighborhood or family doesn't know the Lord or not walking with the Lord and God's placed you in their life to intercede? One hand on their hand, one hand in heaven and you're praying for them. Church, either you plan these times in or life's gonna plan them out. And you're going to wake up one day so distant from God, not because God moved, but because you were distracted with much serving. You were distracted with other things, and you missed what he was doing. I'm going to give us some time to do that very thing, to draw near to God. He tells us if we draw near to him, that if we seek him, we'll find him. We're going to take communion in a minute. And, and I want this to be open for you. And this is not reserved just for people at our church. But if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, desire to follow in obedience to him, then this is, this is a meal that's open to you to remind us of Christ's death on our behalf and in our life. His life in us, living our life. So this is going to be over here. But before we do this, maybe you've never done this before, just in the quietness of the stillness of a moment, I'm just going to ask you to pray through the, the acts. You just spend just a few minutes right where you're at. Just adore God for what he's done and who he is. Confess sins of omission and commission. Thank him. Maybe you just jot down even right where you're at. Just 10 things you're thankful for real quick. Just jot it down. And then ask God to do what is burning in your heart. Ask him to do. Maybe you're here and you don't, you don't know the Lord. You're not part of his family. Today would be a great day of salvation. I plead with you to take a step of faith today, to trust him. I'd be glad to pray with you. I'll be in the back. If you've got something else overwhelming in your life, our prayer team is going to be standing in the back. They would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you. They just, they just love this kind of thing. So they'll be standing. If you see adults standing in the back, they're here to pray for you, pray with you. And you come when you're ready. Let me say a quick prayer for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I repent for being a man so distracted by a device in my pocket that I ignore sometimes the souls of my own kids. 
certainly those in my extended network of neighborhood, who you're moving, hearing cries of help. Lord, forgive us as a people for spending 40 hours a week on devices and consuming this and not living the story that you've put in front of us. Help us to talk about some real ways that we can consume other people's stories less and start living ours more. Lord, we know these devices, they're neutral. They, they're not good or bad, good or evil, that you can use them for your good as much as anything else. And I pray that we position ourselves in a way that we see that. Lord, for people in our gathering today that are struggling with unbelief, I pray you give them the gift of faith, that they would take a step and you would meet them. Your grace would literally overwhelm them that we as a church would begin to taste and see that you're good once again. For those that have been battling great battles, I just pray for them. You'd bring encouragement where they're weary, that the gospel would be beautiful to them once again. For those that are living in sin, unrepentant sin, I just pray that they would confess that and bring that to you. That they, wouldn't, they wouldn't walk out in the same darkness that they walked in. Lord, and you would lovingly embrace them. And as you did, Martha, rebuke so gently. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray that we make much of you in these next few minutes. It's in your name that we pray, amen.